something hit me as a person who's had a traumatic injury. Uh, be strong, you're not alone. Uh, and for, for people who've had these injuries, when you come to a place like Kessler, that is this model system of care, you know, that you're part of this team. And you, though, even though that your life has been turned upside down, that there are these great individuals who will take care of you. So uh, that's just a personal note on mine. Um, Nancy and I get to follow up these earlier great presentations and start to go in a different direction and talk about some of the medical complications that happen after injuries. And, uh, you know, so our discussion together is in the area of cognitive function in individuals with spinal cord injury. I uh, do have a disclosure. Let's see if this will work. Ah, yes. Um, My brain... That's my second favorite organ. Now, we all know what Woody Allen's talking about, right? He's talking about his spinal cord, of course. (laughs) So, um, I'm a spinal cord injury guy. My interests are in secondary medical complications after spinal cord injury. So, you know, getting people back out there and then preventing the complications that happen that bring them back to the hospital. And so I was trying to think about areas to present, and one of the things where cognition and the injury and all these things play a role, and so what I wanted to talk about was this concept, pain after spinal cord injury, okay? And uh, so disclosures, I have no financial interests or conflicts to disclose. Um, Of the drugs I'm going to discuss, only pregabalin is FDA-approved. So the objectives, you can tell that we're researchers. We lay these things out for you. So, uh, you know, what I'm going to discuss during this time, and I'm going to kind of quickly go over these because there's not a lot of time. There is a handout up here. So at the end, I want you all to just sit back, listen to what I'm saying, but there's a handout up front. So after the presentation, feel free to come and grab it. And uh, I was a little late with my presentation, but it's, I'm sure it's going to be uploaded to the site too. So what I'm going to do is talk about the different subtypes of pain after spinal cord injury. Because this concept of pain in a person who's paralyzed and can't feel can be confusing for many people. And if you break it down into just separate components, you can start to understand it. And in understanding it, it helps you manage it. And then the challenges of managing it when the medications don't work. And this is where the cognition and the brain comes into all of this. So so let's talk about pain after spinal cord injury. Um, So what is pain? So we all know what pain is, right? But there's actually a very technical term, technical definition that goes along with it. And it's an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience associated with actual or potential damage, tissue damage, or described in terms of such damage. Now I'm going to go into this in a little greater detail because this definition actually has a lot to it and it will show kind of how cognition and the brain factor into it. So we know pain after spinal cord injury is common. It can affect up to 96% of people with SCI. So throughout their injury, they're going to experience some type of pain. 
Now, there have been several, there's so many studies on pain, and we know that overall gender isn't necessarily associated with it, completeness of injury isn't necessarily associated with it, and the level isn't necessarily associated with it. So the bottom line is anyone with spinal cord injury can have pain. Now we know it can have a significant effect on these individuals, it can have a significant effect on their quality of life, their ability to do work, um, their interactions with their friends, their loved ones. Some people say this is the most significant impact on quality of life, the most impact, important factor affecting their quality of life. And there's been a survey done that people would even trade neurological recovery if they could at least get rid of the pain. So the, one of the issues with peop, in, uh, pain and spinal cord injury is that people with spinal cord injury can have multiple pains happen simultaneously. And so trying to f just tease that out with your typical visual analog scale of on a scale of zero to 10, what is your pain? It's which pain are you talking about? be very confusing for people. So classification helps us try to identify what's causing the pain. And in Western medicine, knowing what causes it, we know how to then possibly treat it. Now, in spinal cord injury, the classification um, schemes generally rely on, you know, the neurological level of injury. So you know, and I think most of you know what that is in terms of is the pain being perceived or is it present below the level of their injury or is it above? So that will help with the classification. And then the location. And then also the quality. So is it burning? Is it aching? Is it stabbing? What are the different things? So overall... There's 29 different classification schemes out there. So that can be quite overwhelming. Um, most, though, if you really boil it down, break it down into nociceptive pain and neuropathic pain. And then those are things that really, and where on the body in a person with spinal cord injury that pain is occurring. So is it above, at, or below the level of their injury? Right now, there's been kind of this meeting of minds and they come up with a standardized classification system and this is what we're using going forward. It's the International Spinal Cord Injury Pain Classification System. And what it does is it's kind of a consensus of all the different groups uh, across the world on the, in the area of pain. And it includes elements from the different previous taxonomies. So it's kind of everything being compiled. And what it does is it's breaking pain down into three tiers, and it's according to the pain type and the source. So if you think about the three-tier hierarchy, and I'm going to go into this in more detail, there are three basic tiers. There's actually four, but the three and two of the ones which are the most important for you is the nociceptive versus the neuropathic, right? That pain caused by something poking you or something being stimulated versus that nerve pain. The other pain is kind of everything that's not that. And unknown is when you just don't know what's causing it. There is no known cause. 
And then within that, within each type, within each type is going to be subtypes. So within nociceptive, you're going to have muscle skeletal and visceral. And then within neuropathic, it's going to depend where that pain is being felt. So it's above, uh, at, or below the level of the injury. And then the third tier is what's causing it. What's the source? What's the pathology? <clears throat> Excuse me. So I'm going to go into this in a little more detail. So let's go to nociceptive pain. Now that's the one that we're all most familiar with, right? That's the one that you can empathize with. That's uh, pain caused by activi- activation of nociceptors. So those are the receptors that tell you that something hurts. It's a way of you know, responding to it. And within that, the subtypes are muscle skeletal. So that's kind of the arthritis, the fractures, and tendinopathies that we might see in people with spinal cord injury, the overuse injuries. Um, Visceral pain is that caused by visceral structures. So the abdomen, so if somebody's constipated or impacted, if they have a UTI or if there's something else going on, like they may actually have gallbladder disease or appendicitis. Um, this one is you know, a little often described as that kind of uh, dull cramping pain. Um, and it's often related to some type of visceral function. And you can see things like autonomic dysreflexia often happen with these types of pains. It's associated with other symptoms. And then other nociceptive pain would be just kind of the pain that people might experience uh, during everyday life. So migraine, um, if you have sensation in a pressure area, the pain associated with a pressure ulcer, um, and then for those with uh, spinal cord injury, the pain caused by the autonomic dysreflexia. So now the neuropathic pain is the other main type of pain. And this is caused by nerve damage. So it could be either damage to the brain, spinal cord, or to the peripheral nerves. Um, now again, most of you have probably experienced this in some form or other when you fall asleep on your arm, right? You have that weird kind of pins and needles tingling feeling, and that's because you compress that nerve for a little while. Now with that pain, you get recovery because the nerve uh, can recover, peripheral nerves can recover, but you have that sense, you know, it's in the area where the nerve was compressed, and it's like I said, that weird tingling pins and needle feeling. And that's what somebody with spinal cord injury who has neuropathic pain is feeling. Now, subtypes within neuropathic pain, again, we're talking about whether it's at the level of the spinal cord injury or below the level of the spinal cord injury. And this is all, again, classification. So it's just trying to help us understand. So at level pain is pain, neuropathic pain that happens within the first three levels of their, after their spinal cord injury, just in that area. Okay? And it's related to the spinal cord injury itself. Um, Below-level pain would be that neuropathic pain that somebody feels like if they say their toes are burning, um, even though they don't necessarily have sensation in their toes. So the toe area would be more than... So let's say, for example, my level of injury, if I'm C6 or C7, if I have pain kind of in more of this immediate area, that would be an at-level pain. But if I have this perceived pain 
and my toes, then that's a below-level pain. And then other neuropathic pain would be things unrelated to the spinal cord injury per se, things like carpal tunnel syndrome. If somebody has an incomplete injury and then later on in life develops a radicular neuropathy, uh, these would be the other types of neuropathic pain. Finally, these other two categories within the types, other pain, um, this kind of, this are the things uh, that are, there's no, no identifiable noxious stimulus or damage to the nervous system. It's unclear what actually is causing the pain, but these are things that we know about. So, for example, things like fibromyalgia. We're not quite sure what's causing it, but it is associated with a pain syndrome. And then the final one is unknown. Somebody has pain, and we just can't figure out what's causing it. Um, I'm going to skip over this for time, but what I want you to just know, and this is a resource for you, is uh, the data set is a way of breaking down the pains. So it asks a person with spinal cord injury to list their three worst pains and then asks them to address each one in order. So it would ask them, okay, tell me about your worst pain. Where do you feel that? And then as a clinician, you get to decide, is this nociceptive or is it neuropathic? And then within each of those categories, what's causing it? If it's nociceptive, is it muscle skeletal? Is it their shoulder or what? Um, and then if it's neuropathic, is it at level, below level? And then also associated with that would be the pain intensity. Like I said, this is just a way to kind of break down causes of pain in somebody with spinal cord injury who may be experiencing multiple pains at once because this could gain, uh, guide our treatment because you might not necessarily treat a muscle skeletal pain the same way you treat a neuropathic pain. So let's talk about pain management. So management of upper limb pain. So this is a muscle skeletal pain. And this is kind of the way we would manage it in everyday life with able-bodied people too. You want to decrease the acute pain. So rest, and in person with spinal cord injury, it's relative rest. Um, because you know somebody who's upper limb dependent, they're relying on their upper body. Um, so you try to relative rest with respect to that. Pharmacological intervention, so non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, things like that. Joint injections or injections into the area, and then different modalities. Uh, we try to address the secondary disabilities that can happen. So are there modifications that need to happen to their wheelchair? Are there home modifications that need to be made? Prevention. Prevention is key with the overuse type injury, right? Making people aware of what can they do to avoid this from happening, especially in that young male paraplegic who's active, wants to get out there, pushing themselves, this idea of no pain, no gain, or use it or lose it. And what they may not realize is if they do this for um, 5, 10, 15 years, they're going to end up burning out their shoulders or their wrists because they're overusing them. Um, the ultimate goal is to avoid surgery because if you do surgery on somebody uh, who's dependent on their upper limbs, you're now potentially increasing a disability that they'll have. So 
management of upper limb. It's about ergonomics. It's decreasing the frequency that they use. Upper limb overuse injuries are just repetitive strain injuries, right? It's like what a a typist might experience on a keyboard or a factory worker. Equipment selection. Mary may talk about this tomorrow, but it's setting somebody up in the lightest wheelchair possible, configuring that wheelchair uh, to fit them. You know, the type of wheelchair that you put some in somebody in makes such a huge difference, and a few pounds does make a difference. Um, even though these are expensive wheelchairs, this is something somebody's going to be using uh, for much of their life. Um, and then for those who need them, consider adding on these power add-ons. So manual wheelchairs now, you have these power assist devices um, that take a manual chair and the the maneuverability and the transportability that you have with that, and you add a power device to it, and now suddenly it's easier to get around. So it's maneuverable, transportable, and they have a power assist component to it. And then education and equipment training. So educating that person to be smart, to you to push their wheelchair properly, to uh, to sit properly in the chair and to transfer properly. Try not try to avoid doing something that may lead to an injury that can then get worse and worse. Exercise, preserving what they have, so strengthening their upper body, flexibility, maintaining that they're making sure that they uh, maintain their flexibility. Uh, A lot of times what will happen is people get very tight in the chest and overstretch their back muscles. So it's making sure they stretch the front muscles and strengthen the back muscles. These are all things of just maintaining their independence. Um, Shifting gears, management of neuropathic pain. Now this is typically managed through medications. Um, There's great uh, guidelines that came out recently. Uh, Really the take home message for many people is pregabalin has become the first line medication for um, neuropathic pain. It's the only one that's FDA approved. Now for a lot of people, uh, their insurance won't pay for this, right? It's an expensive medication. Uh, gabapentin is the next option. One, if pregabalin doesn't work or is not available. And so that may depend on just your clinical team and which one they prescribe. And for the amitriptyline then can be used if pregabalin and gabapentin are ineffective. There have been some studies that show that this can be effective for people who have kind of a combination of depression and neuropathic pain. I just bring up some of these other ones because these are medications that people can be prescribed, but these are considered second-line therapies. So tramadol, Ultram, and Lamotrigine. Um, These are second-line treatments. And what you may find interesting is all the way, a lot of people with spinal cord injury will be put on oxycodone, but um, the narcotic pain medications are actually a fourth-line therapy for people with neuropathic pain. So really, they're not the most appropriate medications for this type of pain in people with spinal cord injury. So in the last remaining time, um, you know, we have medications and things like this, 
But anybody who works with SCI and pain knows that these things aren't always effective. And so what are the other options? So this is where the mind-body connection comes in. So we go back to our definition of uh, pain. And one of the things I want to highlight is that, you know, if you think about it, so an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience. So pain is by definition an experience. It's something that somebody is going through. So while most often there is physical cause, pain also has this psychological phenomena to it, right? The brain is involved. Also, it's an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience. So both sensory and emotional components are required for pain to be pain. So somebody may feel something, but for them to kind of register at pain is something that bothers them, that there is this emotional component to it. And this all factors into trying to manage this type of thing. So as most of you or many of you will know, there's now a biopsychosocial model of pain. That pain is no longer viewed as this phenomena driven only by physical factors, right? That experiences and consequences of pain can be influenced by the physical pathology or dysfunction, but there's also cognition, there's thoughts, there's attitudes about the pain that can affect it. There's the effect, affective state. So what's the emotions? What's the mood? How's the person feeling? There's their behaviors, there's the social factors. So what is society telling that individual? What are friends, families telling that individual? And then demographics. What about this individual? Um, can influence that. So there's so much more to pain than just that actual physical cause. So when you try to treat it with a medication, you also have to realize that there's going to be this psychological component to it. Um, so I, I won't go into this in detail, but one of some of the things that you'll see is poor functioning people with SCI and other disabling conditions can be associated with some of these different things such as catastrophizing, and uh, different maladaptive coping uh, behaviors, you know, solicitous responses. So what kind of responses are they getting from others? Fear avoidance, poor pain acceptance, so the cognitive component to this, feeling alone, you know, you're the only one with this pain. Um, low perceived control of this. This is, especially with neuropathic pain, you have this pain, what's causing it? It's in an area I can't feel. This doesn't make sense. Um, what's important is to not tell people that this is just in your head. Your brain influences it, but it's not being imagined. It's very real. And so to try to show them that they can take control. Um, purpose of this slide is to really just show that there are so many different parts of the brain that factor into this. So not only is there the sensation, but then there's the brain going back down and telling us how we should feel about this. So there's the cognitive component of it, but then there's also the emotional components of all of this. 
Let me just go to this. So really, what are the implications for pain management? So there's multiple targets for intervention. This is really the take-home message, that it, structural or physiological conditions can be producing that nociceptive input or that neuropathic input, um, that there's this perception, but that you know, beliefs, thoughts, attitudes about pain can affect that that behaviors can also affect that, and these are things that need to be addressed when doing pain management. So comprehensive pain management, it's really just think of these things, medications, um, the different cognitive aspects of things. These are tools within your toolbox, Um, and it really needs to be customized to the individual and the needs and the priorities. And this really is a multidisciplinary thing. So it's not only the physician prescribing medications. It's the role of the psychologist, cognitive behavioral therapy. It's the physical therapist. It's the nurses. It's everybody. 